Good morning again. Good morning again. Okay, good. Thank you. Hey, so glad to be back with you guys this week, and uh, I'm grateful to Russ. I know he's teaching a class right now, but for Russ filling in last week, and uh, really filling in is not a great way to describe that because Russ is more than a fill-in, just like when Jeff preaches, he's more than a fill-in. These guys know how to bring the word, and that was a great sermon Russ gave on grace last week. So hope that you were here. If you didn't get to uh, hear that, we'll get that up uh, this week so that you can uh, hear that. But glad to have men like that who can step in. Uh, I was up in Wichita. It was a great week. I wish I had more time. I could share with you some of the stuff that happened last week. Let me just say it was one of the fullest weeks I've had up there in a while. And all the things that I typically experience up there, I got. And so uh, it was full. And, uh, but it was good. Um, hey, one other thing before we jump back into Mark. Uh, we were up here praying for the uh, Haiti team. And, and uh, something developed last night that I forgot to mention to you. One of our team members, Samantha Emery, right now is sick. Almost to the point where we're not sure she's going to be able to leave with us on Friday. So if you would pray for her this week that the medicine she's taking would kick in and speed things up and that her body would heal, that she's able to come. Uh, I know she's getting more doctor's appointments and results throughout the day and tomorrow. So please lift her up as well. All right, so we're in the book of Mark this morning. If you need a Bible, uh, you can uh, find one on the chairs there in front of you. And uh, if you're going to those Bibles, you're going to go to page 1154. If you have your own Bible, uh, we're going to Mark chapter 16, where we're going to look at the uh, last few verses. And I- I'm so glad I've been, I've been looking forward to preaching this sermon for two years now. Not because it's the last sermon in the book of Mark, but just because, you know, it's about time that we got a little different around here. And, uh, you know, I-, I just, I have a friend here. And uh, you've, you've heard about those churches, right, that, uh, that snake handle? Well, anybody Jake the Snake fans? No, I'm not. No, no, it's not. So um, you've heard about those snake handling churches, and uh, this is fake, obviously. And if it's bothering anyone, don't worry, it's, it's fake. Um, the reason it's here at the church is because it's one of my girls' toys, and Lindsay thought it was too realistic, and she kept coming across it in the house. So I keep it in my bottom drawer of my desk where little boys love to find it, and uh, some little girls, too. So, Have you ever wondered where that comes from, though? Why do, why do some churches, why do they, they do this snake handling, and the, and the pastors are, are dancing up there with the snake, and you know, then one of them gets bit, and they ultimately get you know, sick or die? But that's not supposed to happen, right? I mean, don't they have enough faith? Well, that's why I'm excited to preach this morning, because the only place you find this in the Bible is where we're going to be at this morning in the book of Mark, chapter 16. Uh, what, is it going to bother anybody if I just kind of lay that like right there? And, yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> all right, so Mark, chapter 16. Uh, let's take a look at what's going on here this morning, and then we'll come back through and talk about it. But here's where I'm going this morning. As we wrap up the book of Mark, remember Mark has been trying to tell us what it looks like to live as a disciple of Jesus, as a follower of Jesus, and uh, in all kinds of situations. And so now as he covers the resurrection of Jesus, we're going here this morning. If you believe that Jesus is alive, live like it. If you believe Jesus rose from the dead, live like it. So let's take a look here this morning as we read through chapter 16, verse 9 through 20. Early on the first day of the week after he arose, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had driven out seven demons. She went out and told those who were with him while they were mourning and weeping. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After this, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were on their way to the country. They went back and told the rest, but they did not believe him. 
Then he appeared to the eleven themselves while they were eating, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him resurrected. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The one who believes and is baptized will be saved, but the one who does not believe will be condemned. These signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons. They will speak in new languages. They will pick up snakes with their hands, and whatever poison they drink will not harm them. They will place their hands on the sick, and they will be well. And after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. They went out and proclaimed everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word through the accompanying signs. All right, so Mark chapter 16, 9 through 20. And uh, before we even go back and walk through these verses, there's something I've got to address this morning. And it's one of those things that I'm going to not spend as much time on it as some of you would like me to, so you're going to be frustrated. And then others of you, you're going to be really grateful that I'm not going to spend as much time on it because you're about to glaze over. Okay, so I'll welcome you back here in about five minutes. In your Bibles, and maybe you saw it on, on what we just read, you have some kind of brackets around your verses, 9 through 20, or some kind of indicator with a footnote. Right? And it's at the beginning of verse 9 and usually to the end of verse 20, and there's going to be some kind of brackets or it's, it's, it's set apart from your, your normal text in some way. And then you read the footnote, and it says something to the effect of, most scholars believe uh, that, that Mark 9, uh, 16, 9 through 20 was not originally written by Mark. Or it'll say something like, earliest manuscripts do not contain verses 9 through 20. Okay, and, and sometimes I, I'll choose to address this kind of stuff from the pulpit. Sometimes I'll send out an email or a video this morning. I wanted to address it from the pulpit because it's kind of one of the biggest ones that we encounter in all the Bible. Here's what we have going on. Uh, the, the verses 9 through 20, as scholars who understand Greek and understand kind of how manuscripts have been written and they've compared all the many thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of Greek manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, what they're able to discern fairly accurately is what was likely written by the original author and what was added along the way by, say, scribes who were making copies, right? And so the, the general consensus over the, the, the decades and centuries of scholarship has been that Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, was most likely not written by Mark himself. But instead what happened was somewhere along the way, a scribe who was making copies added this in there because they, they thought no way that Mark can end on verse 8, which is what we looked at two weeks ago. Because here's what verse 8 says. Then they went out and ran from the tomb, talking about the women who just saw Jesus, for terror and bewilderment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Boom, end. And so scribes were reading that, and they're going, that's it? That, that, that's all there is? Surely that's not the way Mark chose to end his gospel, right? And, and, and there's not even any mention of the, you know, hardly anything of the resurrection except that, that these women saw him, and then they ran, and, and they were afraid, and they didn't do anything about it. It can't end like that. You know, so uh, what most scholars believe happened is that some scribe along the way, very well-meaning, uh, wanted to go in and kind of smooth that ending over. And so what he did was he looked at Matthew's gospel, who had a whole lot more at the end, and he looked at Luke's gospel, who had some things at the end, and he started kind of pulling pieces together. And so, okay, see, this happened, and, and, and Luke tells us this happened, so we're going to throw that in there. But 
then there's verses 14 through 20 where you can't find that in any other gospel, snakes, poisons, you know, things like that. And, and so what most scholars think happened was at the time this was copied in, there was some cults arising. And these cults among Jewish Christians were cults who were practicing these types of things. And so that scribe decided to write that in. Right? And then what happened is over the centuries then, as that particular manuscript was passed on and another scribe copied it, they just copied what had been added in. And so eventually it made its way into many manuscripts. And so what, what scholars look at is which manuscripts did it make it in? And uh, what are the earliest ones, the ones closest to the time Mark would have written? Are they in that one? And that's where they, they see, no, it's not. In some of our best and earliest manuscripts, the ones closest to the time of Mark, we don't see it. In fact, it doesn't show up until, you know, like a century or so later. And so that's why scholars go, hmm, it must have been added in. All right? That's about the extent I'm going to explain that. But here's, here's what this raises for us. And if you have more questions on this, let's visit. I love talking about this stuff. It's, it's not great sermon material. You know, it'll glaze most of you over. But I love kicking this stuff around. I can send you more resources. Here's the kind of questions that come up when we, when we talk about things like this. One, it raises questions about the reliability of the Bible that we hold in our hands today and the process by which we got it. Right? And on the other side, it actually kind of helps us when we come to passages that are included in verses like this. Let's talk about handling snakes and drinking poison, which nobody is comfortable with and none of us practice. Right? And so it kind of helps. But here, here's what I want you to know this morning. The, the process of copying and translating the Bible into different languages. I've said it before from, from the stage here, and I'm going to say it again. We talk about the Bible being inspired by God, that God oversaw this process of men writing His words so that as they wrote, His Holy Spirit guided them, so that they wrote exactly what He wanted them to write, recorded exactly what He wanted them to record, all the while they never lost their personality. Right? So we didn't have men that became zombies or went into a trance. We had men who were using their cognitive abilities and their personalities seeped in, and the audience they were writing to they considered, and they wrote, and God was guiding that process so that as they wrote, they wrote exactly what God wanted them to do. It was a kind of a team up there, if you will. All right? When we say that kind of thing, though, we say it's inspired by God, therefore it's without errors. It's important for all of you to understand we don't mean your English translation of the Bible. We don't mean any other translation of the Bible that anyone else has. When we say that the Bible is without errors and it's inspired by God, we are talking about the ones that were originally written. The one Mark actually wrote. The one Matthew actually wrote. Luke actually wrote. John, Paul. The ones that they actually wrote because they were the ones being guided by the Spirit. And what's happened over the years is then men have come along and translated that. Okay? So when you come across something in your English Bible like what we see in Mark, that doesn't mess up what we believe the Scriptures teach about God inspiring the writing of the Scriptures because that's not original. right? That's not something that Mark would have uh, written. And we say it was God inspiring the original writer. The other thing for you to keep in mind is the Bibles that we do have, particularly our English Bibles these days, and it varies by your translation, but they're in the high 90s with regard to the level of accuracy that we're able to determine what is most likely original because of the embarrassing wealth of New Testament manuscripts and writings that we have. We have uh, the entire New Testament in all hundreds of thousands of manuscripts that we're able to compare and contrast based on time and periods that are written. Scholars are able to, 90, 90, high 90s percent, uh, be able to verify this is most likely accurate because this person has it, this person has it, has it it's been traced along this way. 
And the, the areas where they're, they're not, say like 9 through 20 in here, and there's a few other areas that we've come across, all of those places, they don't impact anything major for what we believe. In, in other words, verses 9 through 20, if they are not original, and, and there's absolutely no way we can know for certain, right? But if they're not original, the things that we would lose from verses 9 through 20 we get in other places, say like the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, the appearing of the resurrected Jesus to all these different witnesses. So we don't lose that significant central doctrine. And, and the things we do lose, like the handling of snakes and drinking of poison, it's the only place we have it. And so even if it is original, we've got to be very careful about building an entire doctrine and denomination based on one set of verses that may not even be original the text. Okay? So that, that's about all I want to say about that this morning. If that raises more questions for you, like I said, shoot me an email, visit with me. I love to talk about this kind of stuff. Um, if you've glazed over for the last five minutes, come back to me now. We're, we're moving forward. So here's how I want to approach this morning, kind of setting that up. I want to approach this morning's sermon by hitting on some theological principles that do come up in these verses that we can validate in other verses. Okay? So the resurrection. So let, let's talk about the resurrection this morning. So let's, let's go on here. Let's look at um, uh, verses 9 through 13. And here's, here's why I want to sum up verses 9 through 13, because you're going to see a word and a phrase uh, repeated quite a bit. They did not believe. They did not believe. Believing that Jesus is alive leads to living like Jesus is alive. Believing that Jesus is alive leads to living like Jesus is alive. So you saw here in, in uh, verses 9 through 13, Jesus now is revealing himself, so we have him reveal himself to Mary Magdalene, right? We see that in other Gospels. And uh, verse 10, she went out and she told those who were with him uh, while, while they were mourning and weeping. And here's their response, verse 11. When Mary Magdalene comes and tells them about seeing Jesus raised from the dead, verse 11, when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. These are the disciples, the closest followers of Jesus. They're huddled in a room. They're, they're Savior, they're, they're, they're the one they had been following, the Messiah. He's dead. He had talked about raising from the dead for a while, but he actually did it now, and they don't believe. Part of the reason they don't believe is because a woman's coming to tell them that. And in that culture, in that day, the, the testimony of a woman was not very high. It was not valued. So they don't believe it. All right? We go on. Verse 12. After this, he appeared in different forms to two of them while they were on their way to the country. So you can find this in Luke. This is the two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, right? So, so the, this person pulls into Mark and says, hey, yeah, he revealed to these people too. Verse 13, these two disciples, even though their hearts were burning within them is what Luke tells us, they did not believe, right? So the, the disciples, they go and they tell others and they didn't, they didn't believe. So we've got several people seeing the resurrected Jesus and others go and pass on the news, and people don't believe. They, they just can't believe that Jesus has raised from the dead, just like he said he would. I don't blame them. Because believing in someone raising from the dead is not a struggle that just people in the first century faced. It's a struggle that we all face. It's hard to believe that someone raised from the dead. Because people just don't raise from the dead. You know, the walking dead is not real, right? Zombies are not real. Now, some of you are going to send me emails on that over what I just said earlier, right? But listen, we don't really just see people doing that all the time. And so to believe that someone raised from the dead is hard. I get that. 
I wrestle with that from time to time. Because if I'm honest with myself about what I believe, man, I probably sound like a fool to people who don't believe the same things. Because I believe that a man who was killed several thousand years ago, he's raised from the dead, and he's not dead, he's actually alive. Right? That's not a normal thing to believe in. But here's kind of how we wrestle through this, right? So with anything in history... If we want to know that it's accurate, if we want to trust the history, what we rely on is eyewitnesses from that time, right? We rely on people who were there when it happened and wrote about it. And the more witnesses we have, the more people who wrote about it, the more we give validity to their account of history. Say like Julius Caesar. You know, we want to know that Julius Caesar was alive and and the story unfolded the way it did. We read all the historians that wrote about it. Right? Or the Crusades. We want to know that the Crusades were real. Right? We don't just make this kind of stuff up. We pull it from people who wrote about it from that time, who were eyewitnesses, who experienced it. Right? With uh, the resurrection, we have the same thing. We have people who were there, people who saw uh, Jesus after he had died, walking around like he was raised, eating food like he was alive. Right? And they wrote about it. So we have people like Matthew. Right? The first gospel in your New Testament. We have people like Mark, who's writing down the words of Peter. We have people like Luke, who's a doctor, who's going and he's interviewing all these eyewitnesses. And he's compiling all of his records. We have someone like John, who actually worked and walked with Jesus. Right? We have uh, Paul the Apostle, who wrote uh, a lot of our New Testament letters. Right? And he writes about the, the, uh, the, the, the risen Christ. We have a guy named James who was the brother of Jesus, who writes one of the books of the New Testament. And Jude, who was probably one of the brothers of Jesus, who writes a book in the New Testament. And and then there was this guy named Josephus, who was a Jewish historian kind of around that time, and he writes about it as well. We have an abundance of witnesses and historical documents that attest to the fact that this guy Jesus died on the cross, was put in a tomb, the, the tomb was sealed, but then three days later when ladies came back to check on him and, and anoint his body, the tomb was empty and the stone was rolled away. We have record of Jesus after he raised, revealing himself to more than 500 people. That's more than 500 eyewitnesses. You understand that some of the stuff that we rely on and believe is historical, we don't have nearly as many eyewitnesses to it as we do the resurrection. And as I went through that list of people we have who wrote the New Testament, James, the brother of Jesus, and Jude, possibly the brother of Jesus, right? Those were little brothers of Jesus, right? They were not believers in Jesus while he was alive. You go back to Mark chapter 3, and you see his family thought he was crazy. They thought he had gone insane. His family was embarrassed by what Jesus was doing. They did not believe in him. And yet somehow, later on, you get James and you get Jude, the younger brothers of Jesus, and now they're writing letters to the church in the New Testament and they include things about their brother who had raised from the dead. Now let me ask you a question. If your older brother, your older sister, come to you and said that they are the Messiah, the promised one from God, you would probably not believe them, right? Right? Right. What would it take for you as a younger sibling to change your mind about what you believed about your older sibling. To change your mind that when your older sibling said that they were from God and the promised one, what would it take to change your mind? Probably seeing him rise from the dead would do, right? And all of a sudden now, you start to reconsider everything he said 
all the things he's taught, and now you are completely changed. Right? We, we look at then these men who wrote these letters, Matthew and, and, and John, and you consider some of the other disciples, the closest followers, and just in the last few weeks, the last few chapters of Mark, we saw that when Jesus was arrested, these guys, they, they didn't stick around. They scattered like a bunch of cockroaches, right, when the lights turned on in your kitchen. They didn't stick around, and then they went and hid off. They cowered away from Jesus. But all of a sudden, you start reading the book of Acts, which says, follows your Gospels in the New Testament, and you start reading about these same men, and they're different. They're bold. They're, they're willing to be arrested for preaching that Jesus raised from the dead. They're, they're willing to be beaten and stoned and ultimately killed because of their belief in Jesus raising from the dead. What does it take to take men who would once scatter from a man who was being arrested because of fear for their lives to all of a sudden be changed and now live differently and emboldened to proclaim a message of a risen Savior. It's got to take them seeing that risen Savior. Now, you and I, we don't have that benefit thousands of years later. We've not seen the resurrected Christ. Paul, for instance, the Apostle Paul who wrote the letters, you remember what Paul was doing before he became a follower of Jesus? He was actually persecuting the church of Jesus. He was going and killing Christians. He was one of the most zealous men going to persecute the church. Like a modern day Paul would be ISIS today, right? And what does it take to take a guy like that who was so uh, vehemently persecuting the church? Now they, all of a sudden he's changed. And he now writes to the church, plants church, pastors the church. It takes him seeing the risen person who he was persecuting. The one who people were following, who he believed dead, now he sees him alive. It takes that. And that's exactly what we saw in Acts chapter 9 for Paul. You and I don't have that benefit. But we have the benefit of the historical record. And we don't question the historical record on a lot of other things that we just take for history. And we have far less backing that. Things like Julius Caesar... Things like the, the book Homer, Homer right, wrote, and then uh, things like uh, the Crusades or the Civil War or whatever the case may be. We weren't there for any of that stuff. We take it by faith and on historical record based on eyewitnesses who were there. Why would we not consider the same thing as weighty when it comes to the resurrection, when we have an embarrassing amount of evidence? But I understand it's hard to believe in a risen person. It just doesn't happen. But when you get it, when you believe it, it changes you. Right? It, it, it emboldens you. If he can overcome death and now he lives a new type of life, I should not fear death. I can live a new type of life. That's why you see the change in these people. And that's why when we believe that Jesus is alive, we will live like Jesus is alive. But what does it look like to live like Jesus is alive? Living like Jesus is alive leads to sharing that news with others. Living like Jesus is alive leads to sharing that news with others. So let's take a look. Verse 14. So Jesus appears to the eleven themselves while they were eating 
And he rebukes them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him resurrected. So you remember in 9 through 13, right? They went and they told the people and they did not believe. And then another group, they went and they told and they did not believe. There was three times we saw they did not believe. Jesus shows up on the scene. He reveals himself now to the 11, the ones who have walked the closest with him. And he rebukes them because of their unbelief. Why did they not believe? Because their hearts were hard. That's why they didn't believe. So listen, a failure to believe in the resurrection of Jesus is ultimately a result of a hardened heart. And I know that sounds harsh because now you might start to think, okay, well, I have friends, I have family who they don't believe this, but you're telling me their heart is hard? Yes. Spiritually speaking, their heart is hard. Now, some of them, you may actually visibly see a hardened heart, right? But spiritually speaking, the way that, that the, the, the biblical authors sum it up is that the reason we don't believe is because of hardness of heart. Not because God has not revealed himself, not because God has not made himself available, but because of our hardness of heart. Now, understand this. A person who fails to believe in the resurrection or refuses to believe in the resurrection because they have a hard heart doesn't mean that that person can't do good doesn't mean that that person is not kind. They might be the kindest person you know, probably kinder than a lot of Christians you might know. They might be one of the most compassionate people you know, maybe even more compassionate than some of the Christians you know. They might do everything with integrity. What I'm not saying is that a person who has a hardened heart and does not believe in the resurrection, they're not bad in the sense that you and I are thinking about bad people. They could be very good. They can do very good things. But here's the bottom line. And here's where everyone either sinks or swims. It's where you stand before God, spiritually. It's, it's when you understand that before God, none of those things, the most compassionate heart, the most kind heart, you know, you do all these good things, you even do your, your work with integrity, none of that matters in the end. It matters here. But when it comes to being restored into a relationship with, with God, it doesn't matter. The most genuine person in the world, the most compassionate person, the kindest person, will still be condemned to hell if they do not believe in the resurrected Christ. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you're good and kind to people. It matters is, where do you stand before your Creator? The one who is all-glorious, the one who is holy, who is loving, who is just. And there's nothing that you or I can bring before Him to change our status with Him. There's nothing that you or I can do to influence Him to accept us based on what we've done. The reality is it takes God changing our hearts. And He does that when we trust in what He's done. It's when we cease trying to perform on our own and we put all of our weight on the performance of God through Christ. And we trust that when Jesus went to the cross, he died in the place of sinners. That was something we deserved. That was something that you and I ultimately had destined for us until Christ stepped in. And now because he took the place of sinners and ultimately rose from the dead, now you and I are called by God to respond by faith, belief. Do you believe that Jesus did what he said he was going to do? Do you believe that... He died in your place. Do you believe that his resurrection from the dead accomplishes what he said he was going to accomplish? And it's a new type of life now that he has to offer. Do you believe that? See, because until God gets a hold of you, you're going to have a hard time believing that. 
And if you always choose to deny that, your heart will remain hard. But when we respond in faith is when God gives us this new life. Jesus rebuked him and says, your heart's hard. Maybe some of you this morning need to be rebuked. Maybe you need to hear that. You need to hear your heart is hard. You're, you're wrestling with trying to understand the resurrection of Jesus, and you're trying to hold on and, and figure out something that reasonably is not possible. Rationally does not make sense. It's only supernaturally, by the power of God, that something like the resurrection of Jesus makes sense. Maybe some of you this morning need to stop considering so much how to wrap your mind around it. Instead, consider the result of it, the changed lives that lay in the path of it. And Jesus gives them this instruction in verse 15 now. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He didn't say stay where you are. In fact, you know, in our English, it, it looks like it's a command. But in the, in the Greek, it's not. You've probably heard this, some of you. It's, an, it's, a, it's a participle. It's as you are going into all the world, preach the gospel. In other words, as you go about your daily life, as you go about your travels, as you go about your job, as you go about spending time with your family, as you go, preach the gospel. Do it as part of your daily life. Don't make it some special event. Don't make it some, something that you do just one time a year, two times a year. Do it as part of the way you live as you go, as you're spending time around the people you spend time with every day. Preach the gospel. Preach that Jesus didn't stay dead. He's now risen from the dead. And he did that so that sinners can be saved. Preach that. And he says, preach it to every creature. There's no type of person, there's no group of people who's exempt from hearing this gospel. Everybody needs to hear it. Every race, every ethnicity, every type of person, every gender of person, every tribe, everyone needs to hear the gospel. There's no creature, there's no created person on earth, no group of people who God is saying to the disciples, except for them. For the, for the disciples, it might have been the Samaritans. For the disciples, it may have been everyone who's non-Jewish. For you, you might have your category of people. Yeah, I want to preach the gospel, but I don't really want that group of people to be my brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't want that type of person to be my brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you are thinking that way, you are in sin. Because Jesus says, go and preach the gospel to all creatures. Who does God bring across your path? Who does God give you relationships with? Who, who do you have divine appointments with? Preach the gospel to all creatures. If you believe that Jesus is alive, you will live like he is alive. And living like Jesus is alive leads to sharing with others that news about him being alive. It's not something for just pastors and church staff to do. Don't call us and tell us, hey, I've got a friend who needs to hear the gospel. You share the gospel with them. Right? If you need help, call us so that we can help equip you, come alongside and support you. But this is not something that paid staff or paid Christians get to do. It's for all Christians. And we would love to equip you if you find yourself in a spot where I want to share the gospel. I'm not sure I know how to do that. Let's meet and we'll talk through it. Or you know what? If you have a lunch or coffee with that person, ask them if it's okay if your pastor can come along. But don't plan on us doing all the talking. Instead, let us be there as a support to you as you share your life, your changed life, your understanding, your belief in the gospel. Let us support you in that. Because it's not just something 
pursuit for Christians is not just something for vocational pastors and teachers. It's something for all followers of Jesus. Go and share the gospel with all creatures. The one who believes and is baptized will be saved, but the one who does not believe will be condemned. You'll notice how closely linked baptism is to being saved here. It's easy to misunderstand this verse and think that baptism is part of being saved, and it's not. And here's why I tell you that. The simplest reason I'll tell you that is because of that second part. When he says the one who believes and is baptized will be saved, you're thinking, hmm, that sounds like the two have to go hand in hand. But you look at the second part, the only person who's going to be condemned is not the person who failed to believe and be baptized, it's the person who failed to believe. Belief is what is required to be saved. But in the New Testament and in the early church, there was hardly a category for a Christian, a follower of Christ, who was not baptized. Matthew does the same thing. He links it very closely. There was hardly a Christian, hardly a follower. You will probably find one in the New Testament. And he was nailed to a cross, so he couldn't be baptized. The thief, right? You will not find a Christian who believes, but then is never baptized. You will find immediately instead, baptism follows. Baptism is not what saves. Baptism is what publicly proclaims. This is what's happened to me on the inside. I'm letting the world know I've changed my allegiance. I'm not following myself. I'm not following other gods. I am now following the resurrected Christ. And I'm being baptized before you today to proclaim that to you. They go hand in hand. Jesus is the person who believes and is baptized. He will be saved. But the person who does not believe, the person who fails to believe, who remains in unbelief, They'll be condemned. They'll stay right where they are, under the wrath of God, condemned to hell. That's enough to motivate every single one of us to go and preach the gospel to all creatures. Because you don't know who's going to believe. That's not your job, to determine that. You go and you preach. God will then change the heart. You go and you proclaim the gospel. Let them hear it and let God do his work. It's not for you or me to discriminate who we share the gospel with, how we, how we share the gospel. And go and just preach it. Live it. That's what Jesus says. Go and be changed because of it. And then baptize them. And that's something in our culture, our tradition, our church culture, we underemphasize baptism. And it's because we have swung so far trying to protect ourselves from not being associated with some heresy, right? Some, some teaching that says you have to be, uh, believe in Jesus and be water baptized and then you're saved. And we're trying to separate ourselves from that because we don't believe the scripture teaches that. But in our attempts to separate that, a lot of us in our circles, we've really underemphasized that. But you read the New Testament, you will barely find a Christian who was not baptized. It was part of the message. The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, Philip is explaining the gospel to him. We have no clue what he explained, but all of a sudden, at the end of his explanation, the the eunuch decides, I need to be baptized. What's preventing, preventing me from being baptized? There's some water. It must have been part of the explanation. Some of you, maybe you've recently trusted in Christ. Maybe it's time for you to be baptized. Maybe some of you have never been baptized, but you've trusted in Christ. Maybe it's time to be baptized so that you can publicly proclaim to people, I'm following Jesus. The two go hand in hand. It's the time, it's the time where, where Jesus actually tells us to be publicly for him. The belief is not the part. That happens inwardly. But it's after that. Now, go public with it. If you believe Jesus is alive, you will live like Jesus is alive. So the question I'm just going to leave out there hanging 
for those of you who have believed, do you live differently becoming believers? Do you live like Jesus is alive? Do you live like you have new life? For those of you who have not believed, maybe this morning, like I said earlier, you need to get your mind away from trying to grapple with something that you'll never reasonably be able to understand. And instead, consider the changed lives that you've seen. The, the history and the trail of it. And I, and I get it. There's probably some Christians that you're thinking of that you don't want to be like. And I understand that. There, there's some Christians you're probably thinking of if they say they believe in a resurrected Jesus, why don't they have any life? I don't want to be a part of that. I'm as upset about that as you are. Okay? Instead, I want you to find the people that you're drawn to because their lives are different. And you know who they are. You know that something's different about them. You're drawn to them because they're not the same person. They live differently. Look at them. Look at what they what they have. And I bet you're going to find that you want it. And it's available. It's available for you. So, Father, uh, what a way to end the gospel of Mark. All throughout this gospel, you've, you've been trying to teach us to live differently, to live as followers of Jesus. And that flies in the face of culture. It flies in the face of all that we do. And yet, God, that is what you want us to do because you did not back down. Had you backed down, God, we'd have no hope. But instead, you relentlessly pursued us in your love. You bridged the gap that had been put there by sin, sin that we are guilty of, sin that separated us from you. And God, you took care of that through the death of Christ. And then you raised him from the dead so that you overcame death. And ultimately, the the, the victory that sin was claiming now is yours because you will not be defeated. And now that life that Christ has from raising from the dead, you have given to us when we believe, and you make available to all who will believe. And then, God, you entrust us with the message. You don't have to, but you have chosen in your wisdom and your sovereignty to entrust us, the church, with that message. So that unless people hear and believe, they cannot be saved. So how will they hear unless someone goes and preaches it? Let us be those people. Let us be those people who go and preach the gospel to all creatures. And God, may you be glorified in it. And whether we see the results or not, let us find ourselves faithful in proclaiming the gospel, trusting you to do that which only you can do. I pray in the name of Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. Amen. If you're able, will you please stand and I'll dismiss us. Your Savior did not stay dead. Instead, He rose to life, conquering death, defeating sin. And that same power that God raised Jesus from the dead, He makes available to you when you believe. So go now and depart from here and live in that power, trusting your risen Savior. In the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. See you guys.